Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In the first 25 minutes, I'll talk with people from groups for and against State Issue 2, which seeks to legalize recreational marijuana in Ohio through a statewide ballot issue on November 7th. Then, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10-TV, Doug Petcash looks back on the second Republican presidential debate and discusses it with former Governor Bob Taft and University of Dayton political science professor Christopher Devine. And Lindsey Mills will look at the abortion law in Ohio and how it relates to the constitutional amendment proposed next month, State Issue 1, that seeks to enshrine abortion rights in Ohio. And we'll wrap up the hour with Governor Mike DeWine talking about Ohio's new distracted drive. Law. Police began issuing tickets for such offenses as texting while driving on Thursday. First up on Columbus Perspective, a discussion about State Issue 2. Ohio already has medical marijuana. Issue 2 would legalize, regulate, and tax adult-use recreational marijuana for those 21 and over. They could also grow up to six plants individually and no more than 12 in a household with multiple adults. The group favoring it is called the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. And against it is the group Protect Ohio Workers and Families. I'll talk with people from both sides, starting with State Senator Mark Romanchuk. He's a Republican from Ontario near Mansfield. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about State Issue 2, which is about recreational marijuana. I guess uh, as we record this, you were involved in a forum last night about that, right? I was. It was a forum. Uh, there was both the pro side and, and no side, and uh, it lasted for about an hour, and it uh uncovered some uh, very interesting things. Did you learn anything uh, one way or the other, either from input from people or, you know, maybe some ways that the other side is approaching this that you weren't aware of or, or learned something about last night? Well, uh, there were most of the things I think we were aware of, and, and basically they're ignoring the facts or ignoring the data that's come out of the other states that have already legalized. Um, they claim that the uh, uh, reports and the research is somehow flawed. It's not, but that that's they're standing pretty uh, strong on that. But what the most interesting thing that came out is in the language, it says that the THC level in the marijuana product has to be a minimum of 35%. Now, 35% represents seven times stronger than what uh, weed had uh, as far as THC back in the 80s. Now, they denied that. Uh, they denied that, that that was the minimum, and uh, uh, they said it was a maximum. Well, their language says it's a minimum. So one of two things is going on. Either they're trying to hide that fact, which makes you know this marijuana industrial strong type of uh, marijuana it's super strong if it's going to be that potent but uh, when you look at the language it absolutely says no less than 35% THC so i'm not sure what they're saying if they're mistaken or if they're not being truthful but this is industrial grade type marijuana and it's very dangerous to the public as uh, Ohioans decide whether to vote yes or no on this, uh, on allowing recreational marijuana, we've had medical marijuana now for a few years in Ohio. What's wrong with recreational marijuana, in your opinion? Well, my opinion, first of all, it is addictive. Uh, and it, we know that four out of 10 individuals who use marijuana go on to use a higher uh, potent drug. 
And, you know, I've been in the legislature for 10 years, and I've worked in the health and human services area. And I can tell you I've heard countless stories about addiction and overdoses. And guess what? We have, we're in the middle of a drug epidemic in Ohio. In fact, Ohio leads the nation in overdoses per capita. So we're in the middle of a drug crisis. We should not be introducing and legalizing and making more available an addictive drug. It just doesn't make sense. Some of the funding from the taxes that come from this will be to set up anti-addiction programs and education, you know, similar to, to gambling and a quit line for smoking and that kind of thing. Do you feel that those won't be effective or what's your take on that? Well, it's interesting enough. They do admit the addiction side of this. That's why they they funnel some of the money into addiction treatment. The state and the federal government are already spending hundreds of millions in addiction treatment. And we still are in the middle of a drug epidemic. That's number one. Number two, this other social equity piece is an absolute sham. And the reason it is, is over a third of the money of the taxes that are collected goes back to the actual industry. So they, that money has to be spent uh, on things, of, on individuals who can maybe get back into the marijuana type business. And by the way, uh, you could be a convicted drug dealer in order to qualify for some of that money. So this was written behind closed doors. It was written in a Columbus law firm, and it hasn't seen the light of day until now. And there, the, the language is very cleverly written, and there are a lot of traps in here. And once people read it, they're going to find out that this is, a, this is a super bad deal for Ohio. Talking with State Senator Mark Romanchuk, he's a Republican from Ontario. What about folks who would say, you know, alcohol is a whole, whole lot worse than this, and it's legal, and, and you know, society still manages to operate? Well, it's the other way around, actually. Marijuana is much more potent, much more harmful to individuals than alcohol is. In fact, marijuana has long-term effects for our youth. And we know in states that have legalized the usage of uh, marijuana by our youth, both accidentally and deliberately, has increases. It absolutely increases. And we see a lot of children ending up in emergency rooms because they they ingest uh, marijuana by mistake. So it's much more harmful. It's, it's a bigger, much bigger problem than alcohol, and um, it, it's just a bad deal for Ohio. A survey came out not too long ago from uh, Fallen Research. This was more than 500 Ohioans uh, that were surveyed, and it showed pretty strong support for recreational marijuana. 68% of Democrats support it, 62% of independents. And among Republicans, 48% support, 46 are opposed. So it looks like it's, it's got some pretty universal uh, support behind it. Well, look, the industry's been on this marketing campaign for two or three decades. And they've been saying over and over again, marijuana's okay, marijuana's good, marijuana can benefit our society. That's just not true. Uh, in fact, it's still a Schedule One drug with the federal government. What that means is the federal government has has labeled it as a dangerous drug. It's on the same list as LSD, heroin, and ecstasy. So the drug is dangerous. 
they've been marketing uh, what they believe are some kind of benefits, but it's just not true. And unfortunately, uh, until the public really digs into things, uh, uh, they probably, uh, as you just stated, have uh, some you know interest in marijuana, where in fact it's just very bad for the body. What is your take on the medical marijuana aspect in Ohio? Well, we have, it's legal here. Uh, we passed that in the legislature. And um, it is addressing those needs, uh, whatever they may be with regard to pain uh, and other chronic illnesses. Uh, so we are covering that. Um, it's very easy to get a medical marijuana card. Um, and so there's really no need for recreational because the, med- the medicinal side is being taken care of. Do you think that people who want marijuana for recreational purposes are finding ways? One person kind of told me that it was a little bit like Ohio's old fireworks law, where you had to sign a paper saying that you weren't going to set them off in Ohio when everybody mm-hmm. was anyway. Is, it, is there kind of a wink and a nudge thing about Ohio's medical marijuana law? Um, not with regard to the medical marijuana law that I'm aware of, but I will say this, the black market that's currently selling marijuana is hoping that this passes. Why is that? Because it makes their market larger and they'll be able to undercut the legal sellers of marijuana because they don't pay a tax. They don't have overhead. So the black market actually grows when you legalize marijuana and with the growth of the black market, crime will go up. So therein lies the problem. That's why Ohioans will be, uh, you know, uh, they'll have to pay for the cleanup of all this carnage. Now, the folks on the other side say that because marijuana is uh, not regulated and it's, you know, it, it's on the street and you don't know who you're getting it from or where it came from, that that's more dangerous than if it was a regulated product in Ohio. Yes, but again, the language clearly states that the THC level must be above 35%. That makes it very potent type marijuana. And, and likely will be more potent than what's on the street. Uh, because this has been genetically engineered and they have growing techniques that they can add all this THC level to the marijuana, uh, becomes very potent. So it may be even more potent than what you can buy on the black market. Talking with State Senator Mark Romanchuk, he's a Republican from Ontario. 23 states have it. Are you seeing some big problems in some of the states that have recreational marijuana? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the states that have legalized, without a doubt, the data shows that traffic deaths go up, workplace injuries go up, crime goes up, and these ER visits by children uh, who've uh, ingested some marijuana go up. So it is not working out necessarily in those other states, and uh, the same kind of problems that have happened there will come to Ohio. Senator, is uh, there information online that you recommend folks go to to check out? Yeah, the name of the group is Protect Ohio Workers and Family. If you uh, Google that, uh, a, a website will come up and uh, give you all this information, hopefully, that uh, I've been able to communicate. State Senator Mark Romanchuk, Republican from Ontario. Anything else you'd like to add? No, just vote no on issue two. Uh, let's keep the state safe. We're currently in a drug epidemic. We don't, don't need to make it any worse. Senator, thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Take care.
Now we'll look at the other side. With me is Tom Heron, who is a spokesperson for the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about uh, State Issue 2, which uh, seeks to make recreational marijuana legal in Ohio. Can you talk a little bit about the movement and the, and, and the effort to put that on the ballot? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, th- there are several reasons why Ohioans are going to support Issue 2 uh, this November. Uh, first, it's really about justice. I mean, marijuana prohibition has been a complete failure. Um, today, it is still far too easy for somebody with a minor involvement with the criminal justice system because of one mistake to have their lives upended. Um, you know, a minor marijuana conviction can adversely impact a person's ability to get a loan, to get a job, to get into school, or to find good, affordable housing. And issue two will correct that injustice by eliminating the disastrous policy of uh, marijuana prohibition. Issue two is also about patients. You know, here in Ohio, we have a very successful medical marijuana program uh, where we know, based on the last several years of experience here in the Buckeye State, that we can safely regulate the production and sale of marijuana products to ensure that they're, they're safe, they're tested, and they're reliable. But the reality is that too many Ohioans still can't participate in the medical marijuana program. You know, maybe you're a veteran suffering from PTSD whose VA doctor is prohibited under federal law from issuing a recommendation for medical marijuana. Or maybe you're a cancer patient treated by one of the major health systems who also prohibit their doctors from issuing those recommendations. You know, issue two will remove those barriers and allow those patients the ability to access the medical marijuana products that they need. And issue two is also about economics. You know, the Drug Enforcement Policy Center at Ohio State University estimates that once our program is up and running, we could be generating over $400 million every single year in new tax revenue to the state of Ohio. It'll go to very important causes like social equity and local government funding, in addition to providing additional funding for substance abuse and addiction. So for all of these reasons, justice, patience, and economic development, Issue 2 is going to be a really great thing for Ohio. What about people who say legalizing recreational marijuana just sends the wrong message for the youth of today, that it is uh, potentially destructive to them or uh, addictive and could lead to harder drugs or or other problems? Yeah, you know, uh, we're definitely entering the silly season uh, of politics here about a month before the election. It's been really regrettable to see the issue to opponents result to, you know, lies and scare tactics, putting out the same debunked and misleading reefer madness talking points. Um, we've, we've had regulated adult use programs in the United States for about a decade now. So we know what's happened uh, when states have started regulating adult use sales. We have actual data, we have actual facts that we can look to. And so let's talk about those facts. We know that in states that have regulated adult use sales, there is no impact on youth usage. It does not go up. And that makes perfect sense because right now in the unregulated market, in the black market, drug dealers don't check for ID. They don't care where they sell products 
and they don't care what those products look like. There are no advertising restrictions. There are no restrictions on product packaging in the black market. Compare that to the regulated market where, you know, under issue two, we want to regulate it like alcohol, which means you got to be 21 to buy it. You got to be 21 to use it. The dispensaries have to check ID. There are rules in place to prevent advertising that targets minors or the creation and packaging of products in ways that are attractive to children. So we know that a regulated market is the best way to keep marijuana out of the hands of kids. We also know that in these regulated markets, it's the best way to protect public health because in the black market, products aren't tested. The supply chain's not regulated. There are no rules governing how those products are created. In the regulated market, under issue two, products are tested before they ever make it to a dispensary shelf. So we know that those products aren't contaminated with mold or heavy metals or, God forbid, you know, things that you see in the unregulated market like products contaminated with fentanyl. That doesn't happen in a legal regulated market. And we also know that regulated markets generate hundreds of millions of dollars in your tax revenue. Drug dealers don't pay taxes. So what we want to do is transition away from the black market. You know, people are already using marijuana. They're just buying it from drug dealers or they're buying it from dispensaries in Michigan and sending their tax revenue to that state up north. And we want to put an end to that. Talking with Tom Heron, he's a spokesperson for the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. Talk to me about this measure uh, allowing for homegrown marijuana. The state patrol has programs in the past where they use planes to fly over and find fields of illicit marijuana that's growing. And I realize that we're talking about a very small amount that could be grown by a person. But how does all that figure in? And, and what happens if neighbors are suspicious? Maybe somebody's growing too much of it? Or, I mean, how, how is all that going to be regulated? Yeah, so, so under issue two, there are actually more restrictions on home cultivation of cannabis than, than there are restrictions for the home brewing of beer. Under issue two, uh, people, adults, would be authorized to grow up to six plants or a maximum of 12 plants per household with explicit restrictions uh, to ensure that, that uh, those marijuana plants are grown and locked in closed areas and uh, places that aren't accessible to children. Again, we want to regulate marijuana in much the same way we regulate alcohol. People can brew their own beer at home responsibly, and we think that uh, people can also cultivate marijuana in their own home responsibly, consistent with the express restrictions uh, included within Issue 2. We had uh, State Senator Mark Romanchuk of Ontario on right before you, who is uh, one of those speaking out against State Issue 2. One of the things that he said was that the language in your proposal calls for the THC level to be at a minimum of 35%, which he said was seven times stronger than what pot was back in the 1980s. Yeah, that's patently false. Under issue two, the cap on THC uh, plant material starts out at 35%. That's the maximum THC level. Uh, And that's also the maximum THC level within our medical marijuana program. Again, this is an, another example of issue two opponents, you know, resorting to complete falsehoods in an attempt to scare Ohio voters because they know when Ohio voters hear the facts, they support issue two. And that's why poll after poll after poll over the last several months have shown that 59 percent of Ohioans support issue two. 
I was going to talk to you about that, too. A poll from Fallen Research shows that 68 percent of Democrats support it, 62 percent of independents. And even among Republicans, 48 percent support, 46 percent oppose. If you were to paint a demographic that is most in favor of this or most against it, where does that line fall? You know, it doesn't seem to be much of a political issue. Yeah, I I agree. Um, People know what regulated programs look like. They've been to states that have started regulating adult use marijuana sales, and they have seen firsthand that these programs work, the sky hasn't fallen, the boogeymen haven't shown up. Uh, Regulated markets are better than unregulated markets. You get additional tax revenue, you protect public health, keep marijuana out of the hands of kids. These programs are successful. So uh, our, our proposal is popular across just about every demographic, whether it's political persuasion, well, what part of the state you live or age, etc. cetera. Uh, regulation of marijuana is popular. It's something that Ohioans want, and that's why we believe that Ohioans are going to come out and support Issue 2 on Election Day. If this is approved and somebody is not interested in growing it on their own at all, they just want to have it available to them, what will they do? How will they find it? Do you have any idea how much it's going to cost? So, so under issue two, um, within nine months from the effective date, the state's required to start issuing uh, adult use dispensary licenses so that we can quickly provide an alternative uh, to the black market here in Ohio and provide you know, safe, tested, regulated, and taxed products. So our hope is that by the end of the year, if issue two passes, you know, by the end of 2024, uh, we will have um, an adult use program operational here in the state of Ohio. What will this do to the medical marijuana dispensaries? Great question. So under issue two, uh, we don't replace the medical marijuana program. The adult use program would operate side by side with the medical program. And that's really important because, as I mentioned, issue two is in large part about patients and and to make sure that Ohio patients have the access to the medical marijuana products that they need. So uh, issue two um, will ensure that patients who are participating in the medical marijuana program still have access to those same medical marijuana products that they rely on. Even though theoretically the folks who are seeking medical marijuana might be a different crowd than the folks who are looking for recreational marijuana, could this start a price war between these two sets of dispensaries? Um, I I don't know that I'd call it a price war, but what I do think you'll see is that um, as the industry uh, and as the market continues to develop, I do think you'll see products become more affordable. You know, uh, we designed this uh, regulatory framework to ensure that we can put the black market out of business and also to ensure that Ohioans don't need to drive to Michigan. You know, the the two biggest opponents of Issue 2 are drug dealers and Michigan dispensary owners who know that they're going to lose business when Issue 2 passes. Talking with Tom Heron again, he is a spokesperson for the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. And I wanted to go back quickly to the idea about the message it sends to youth. Do you really think that it in no way has any harm or could possibly cause any harm to the youth of today if they start young? I realize it's going to be illegal for them, but if it becomes easier for them to get a hold of, common sense would tell you that more youth will start smoking or using pot because it'll be more available. Could that not be harmful in the long run for some of them? Yes, so, so, Dave, 
it's not about what I think. It's about what the data shows and what the facts are in the states that have already begun regulating the sale of marijuana to adults. And the facts are that youth usage does not increase. That's something that has been proven clearly in study after study after study. You know, one thing we all agree with is that kids shouldn't use marijuana. Our opponents think that the prohibition framework we have in place is just fine. That's doing a great job of keeping marijuana out of the hands of kids, and we know that's not true. We know that the best way to keep marijuana out of the hands of kids is by establishing a regulated framework overseen by state regulators so that if a dispensary does sell marijuana to a child, they'll lose their life in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars that they've invested into their business. I mean, it makes no business sense to break the law and to lose the investment that you've made in that business. Um, and that's why these programs have been so successful. And that's why state after state after state continues to implement an adult use program. Tom Heron with a coalition to regulate marijuana like alcohol. It's state issue two in November. Anything else you'd like to add, Tom? Well, again, I just want to reiterate issue two is about justice. It's about economics and it's about patience. Regulated adult use markets have worked throughout the country. We know how to do this in Ohio. We've been regulating the production and sale of marijuana under our medical program for several years now. We're going to build on that experience. We're going to build on that success to put the black market out of business and to put millions of dollars in new revenue into the state of Ohio through the adult use tax. So I would ask all of your listeners to come out on Election Day and vote yes on issue two. If folks want more info, do you have uh, information online? Uh, we do indeed. Uh, you can visit our website at www.justlikealcohol.com. All right. Tom Heron, thanks so much for your time and the information today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, too. A couple of additional pieces of information about State Issue 2. Researchers at Ohio State University have estimated that Ohio could see between $276 million and $403 million in revenue by the fifth year of an adult use program. The University of Washington found teens were more likely to use marijuana after it was legalized. Other researchers reported a decrease in use among high school students in states with legal markets. The Columbus Dispatch reports that cases of kids younger than six who ingested marijuana edibles increased by more than 1,300 percent from 2017 to 21. That's according to an analysis of information from National Poison Data Systems. Most exposures occurred at home, and nearly 23 percent of patients were admitted to the hospital. Once again, Election Day is November 7th. Early in-person voting starts on Wednesday and includes the Saturday and Sunday before Election Day. And absentee voting by mail also begins Wednesday. Election Day, the polls will be open from 6.30 in the morning until 7.30 p.m. Tuesday, November 7th. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Good morning. This week on Face the State, the Republican debate. We're taking a deep dive into the presidential election and exploring how the candidates are polling. I'm also asking our political experts about the frontrunner's decision to keep away from the rest of the pack. Ohio's Supreme Court weighs the future of abortions in this state, what it means for the law currently on the books, and looking ahead to November, will the justices have a decision before voters make their own? And it's one of the kingpins for the mayoral election. We explore the problems around juvenile crime and the system in place to serve justice.
Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good Sunday morning, and thank you for joining me. I'm Doug Petcash. There's much to get to this morning, but we start with the presidential election some 400 days away. Republican candidates are back on the campaign trail after a second debate. Once again, a debate not including the GOP frontrunner. Thank you for speaking while I'm interrupting. Literally. While I'm speaking. Well, you said Bob Payful. If I may finish. You can't be on both sides. Gentlemen, you'll have your turn. One of the challenges we should have the Republican debate ended like it began, with chaos and confusion about a clear party challenger to frontrunner Donald Trump. The candidates are urgently trying to dent the former president's commanding lead. Before we discuss the debate with our pair of political experts, I first want to take you back to Simi Valley, California. As seven GOP presidential hopefuls took the stage at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, the party's frontrunner was once again absent. Donald Trump is missing in action. He put $7 trillion on the debt. He should be in this room to answer those questions for the people you talk about who are suffering. With a smaller stage, down one from their last debate, the candidates fought to break through. Gentlemen, you'll have your turn. One of the challenges we should have have a debate. The man at the center lectern, Ron DeSantis, went into the night with a lot to prove. Once considered the party's best hope of dethroning former President Donald Trump, the Florida governor has lost ground in recent polls. As commander-in-chief, I'm going to use the U.S. military to go after the Mexican drug cartels. They are killing our people. After memorably clashing with several rivals in Milwaukee, Ohio native Vivek Ramaswamy said his goal this time around was to stress his policies and positions. Unlock American energy. Drill. Frack. Burn coal, embrace nuclear energy, put people back to work. And former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley looked to build on the momentum her campaign gained from the previous debate. We need to make sure we put 25,000 more Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. As for the former president, Donald Trump once again skipped the debate. He'll do so again for the next debate. Wednesday night, he opted to hold an event in Detroit amid the ongoing auto workers strike. I've risked it all to defend working class from the corrupt political class that has spent decades sucking the life, wealth, and blood out of this country. New polling this morning is showing how the first voters of the 2024 election are feeling about the candidates. A CBS poll asked caucus voters how they are planning to vote come January. When it comes to Iowa, national frontrunner and former President Donald Trump also leads the Republican primary field comfortably. Most of his supporters are backing him enthusiastically. His current margins would translate to him getting half of Iowa's delegates. In New Hampshire, the former president also leads the polling. His current lead there would give him the lion share of New Hampshire's delegates. Trump's big lead comes because of the qualities tested. He does very well on being seen as prepared and as a strong leader. Few describe Trump as likable. While fewer than half say he understands people like them or describe him as a true conservative, he nonetheless has a dominant lead among self-described conservative voters. 
This morning, I want to take some time to discuss the candidate's performance in this debate, as well as where the election stands so far. I talked with political science professor Christopher Devine with the, uh, with the University of Dayton. And he is also an expert on presidential elections. And former Ohio Governor Robert Taft, who also teaches in the political science department at the University of Dayton. Gentlemen, first of all, a question for both of you, and we'll start with Governor Taft. Uh, what were your big takeaways? Well, uh, I thought the debate uh, was a big win for the leader, uh, Donald Trump, in that there were no breakout moments. There were no big mistakes. So there was nothing that's going to limit the field of candidates to go against Trump. As long as there's four or five or six or seven candidates in there, uh, the longer that goes on, the better it is for Trump, who, of course, has a big league now. You've got to get down to one or two against Trump for anyone else to have a chance. And how about for you, Christopher? Yeah, I agree. I think that's always the dynamic to pay attention to is Donald Trump as the not just the front runner, but the front runner by quite a margin at this point. And skipping debates, the first two debates, I mean, you know, when do we ever see that uh, in presidential primaries? And um Shaking that up, uh, dislodging him from that front runner status, I think is only going to happen if every candidate on that stage piles onto him for something like that and really criticizes him. Uh, and instead, you saw some moments. You, you saw the Donald Duck uh, quote from Chris Christie. You saw Ron DeSantis at one point um, actually going directly after him, which he's been reticent to do throughout the campaign. But it wasn't a consistent theme. And a lot of what we saw more so was them fighting with each other. Uh, often, you know, really interrupting each other quite a bit, but it really feels like they're running for second place. And Governor, do you think that that's a good strategy on the former president's part to not debate? I thought it was very smart. And of course, he was up in Detroit uh, criticizing President Biden as if he's already the nominee. Uh, so, so uh, you know, uh, if he had been at the debate, then they might all have been piling on. I, I think it's a it's a low risk strategy for him. He's already said he's not going to participate in the third debate down in Miami. Uh, so, you know, with his kind of league, uh, let them all, you know, vie for second place. And, uh, you know, nobody really stood out. Um, everybody kind of held their own uh, among uh, the so-called also rans. So that means uh, I don't see how someone's going to get out before New Hampshire. Uh, or um, before Iowa, uh, even before South Carolina, you've got two candidates from South Carolina. You know, both are, you know, st potentially strong candidates, but uh, that's not going to be good for either of them if they're both running against each other against Trump in South Carolina. And, you know, speaking of that race for second place, Cincinnati native and Columbus resident Vivek Ramaswamy is in a close contest now with Nikki Haley and uh, Chris Christie. Um, Christopher, what do you make of his performance at the debate and his campaign so far? I think it was a continuation of what we saw in the first debate uh, where he commanded a lot of attention. You know, in, in some ways, he was often the focal point uh, of the discussion and, uh, you know, getting some uh, interesting reactions from other candidates. Uh, of course, Nikki Haley's uh, line about him uh, making uh, everyone dumber when he speaks, things like that. Um, 
even when he's being attacked, he's in the center of the conversation. And for someone who's never held political office, that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, so, yeah, he's up in the polls now. You know, I think we've seen some patterns like this before where someone like that who's an unknown rises and then falls later as people get more serious about electing a president. So I think we're probably going to see that, uh, especially as long as there's uh, this lead for for Donald Trump. Um, some other people might uh, uh, you know, say that they're going to vote for Vic Ramaswamy, if only because they just like kind of his style. Uh, but the idea that he's going to get the most votes in the and uh probably any state i think it's very unlikely and governor what do you think of, of vivek ramaswamy's performance so far well i think it's amazing uh, for a first-time candidate how well he has done it's quite remarkable i don't know that he's established himself in the public view as someone who has the experience or the breadth of knowledge to be a president he's certainly uh, been a great uh, uh candidate for the other candidates to attack uh, in the debate. Uh, but as Chris said, you know, that even gives him more exposure. So we'll see if he's in there for the long run. Uh, it's, it's a really amazing phenomenon what he's done so far. Governor, you talked about, you know, having that many candidates on stage. And, you know, this time there was chaos. They were cutting each other off. There was a lot of that right. back. Let you me have, speak. Let me speak. Yeah. You'll get your turn. Is, do you find any value in a debate with that many people on stage? Not really. There's not an opportunity for anyone to really establish themselves, uh, to make a strong, coherent points, to have a dialogue. Uh, I think it's very frustrating for most viewers to watch that kind of a debate where, you know, one minute uh, for answering a question, that, that's simply not enough time uh, to have any kind of an in-depth discussion of the issues or to really get to know these people. Discussion, negotiation, mediation, and compromise. Four words used to describe what it took for the Ohio Redistricting Commission to come to a deal on new maps for state house and Senate districts. Tuesday night nearly became Wednesday morning before the commission made their decision. I was there for the long day as the votes came in. Prove me wrong, please. I want you to prove me wrong. Draw fair districts. Tuesday started with public testimony, all but one witness against the proposed Republican maps as drawn. The commission violated the Constitution at every turn. The process was a failure. The maps were a failure. The day ended nearly 13 hours later with a vote. With a vote of 7-0, the maps are adopted. A unanimous vote of the Ohio Redistricting Commission. All five Republicans and two Democrats said yes to newly modified maps that came together during a taxing day of closed-door Talks. This map is the uh, result of an awful lot of hours of, of discussion, uh, consideration, negotiation, mediation, and more discussion and negotiation. We worked hard to find a compromise, and it's illustrated by the amended maps that we have before us today. The Ohio Supreme Court shot down the last five redistricting maps as unconstitutional because they unfairly gerrymandered in favor of Republicans. Leaders on both sides believe the new unified bipartisan redistricting plan maps, as they're called, are constitutional. Still, their fate could be decided in the courts. I think the intent is for it to be an eight-year map, but ultimately that's going to be up to the courts to decide. Uh, but I think with a bipartisan 
bipartisan double vote, the Constitution is, is there's an argument that it would be for the remainder of the decade. Through redistricting, Democrats made potential gains from where they stand right now. In the House, Republicans hold 67 seats to the Democrats' 32. In the Senate, the advantage is 26 to 7. Under the new maps, Democrats could increase their seats in the House by 6 to 38. In the Senate, they could gain three with a chance of another three. Today, the redistricting commission is adopting a map that is more proportionally representative of Ohio voters. At the end of the day, the long day, time will tell if Ohio voters make those redistricting predictions come true. And besides voters making decisions and potentially flipping their districts, what comes next for Ohio's maps challenged in the Ohio Supreme Court? The last five versions have been and all were rejected for partisan favoritism, which is what led up to this effort. District maps aren't the only discussion the Supreme Court has recently had. State officials urged the state's highest court to let a ban on abortion at six weeks of pregnancy take effect. It's important to note we're weeks away from voters deciding whether that ban would be blocked, making abortion a constitutional right in this state. Governor Mike DeWine signed Ohio's law in 2019. It took effect last year after the Supreme Court overturned its landmark Roe v. Wade ruling. Ohio's Solicitor General asked the court to reverse a preliminary order that blocks that law, an order made by a Cincinnati judge. There are lawsuits against the state, and justices began weighing whether the state can appeal. 10TV anchor Lindsay Mills joins me on the desk this morning. Lindsay has really extensively covered Ohio's abortion debate. First of all, good morning, Lindsay. Good morning, Doug. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. This so, first of all, I, I want to start by asking you know, the very basic question mm-hmm. basically what brought us to this point today and the, the Supreme Court have, you know, kind of reviving the conversation on abortion? Of course. So, this has been a long legal battle, and here's how we got here today. You briefly covered it so far. Here's how we got here. When Roe v. Wade was overturned in the summer of 2022, the state's heartbeat law took effect, banning an abortion from the time a heartbeat is detected. Three months later, the law was paused following a a lower court's ruling. Attorney General Dave Yost appealed that ruling, and that brings us to oral arguments heard in the state's highest court over the case, preterm Cleveland versus Yost. The outcome will determine whether the injunction should be allowed to stand and if medical providers can bring a legal case on behalf of a patient. Doug? And Lindsay, you touched on this. This case isn't really whether abortion should be legal in Ohio. Rather, it focuses on whether the Heartbeat Act should remain on hold. And I want to remind our viewers of that law right now. The law, again, signed by the governor in 2019, went into effect last summer. It criminalizes abortion if cardiac activity is detected in the embryo. That's typically within the first six weeks of gestation. However, the law does not have a gestational time limit. The law does have exceptions, one to prevent the death of the mother, the second due to a serious risk of major bodily function of the pregnant mother, and the third in cases of an ectopic pregnancy. So, Lindsay, what is the argument that that both sides have here. So there are two areas of focus with this specific case. The state argues that every day this law is on hold is actually causing harm. They challenge the length of this process. They say that this injunction should not be allowed to stand. They also question the use of a third party being a medical provider. Now, preterm Cleveland, the attorney representing that side, they say that a medical provider is the best to represent a patient on a legal case, especially in terms of abortion. And also, they believe that the injunction should be allowed to stand as it has been law for years here in Ohio. 
So what's next? What's the next step? Exactly. Of course, this is all under the backdrop of the November election, right, which Mm -hmm. is coming up faster than we can uh, predict here. And I can tell you that if depending on the outcome of this case, it could have an implication on whether the heartbeat law stands here in Ohio. But of course, that question will remain on the November ballot to enshrine the protections here in Ohio. But this course, this this case, of course, could have um, an impact on that as well. So the, the, the vote could have an impact on the case, but the case doesn't have an impact on the vote that people will be taking in November. Well, the case could affect the law and it could reignite the abortion law here in Ohio, which bans abortions from six weeks on. But at the same time, voters will still see that question on the November ballot to enshrine protections. So what will that mean for the abortion law? We have yet to see. All right. And I know you've been, as we said, covering this extensively. I know you'll keep on top of it for mm-hmm. us as well as this plays out over the next five weeks plus. Of course. Doug, Lindsay, thanks for thank having you. me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. We're still ahead this Sunday morning. The rise of missing persons cases in Ohio. We talked to the attorney general about what the state is doing about it. We've got almost a thousand people on the missing persons list here in Ohio. Um, Every one of those stories is a heartbreak. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. We put our lives on the line for our country. We braved the unknown. We did what we were told. And we lit up. Our cigarette packs were as valuable as the packs on our back. Maybe more. At one point, cigarettes were part of our daily ration. Smoke them if you got them. And boy, we were smoking them. Bumming a smoke was the norm. It was an escape from the reality of dirt, sweat, and forgetting how many days you were so far from home. Never had to worry so long as you had a light and the smoking lamp was lit. If that was you then, get your lungs screened now. Surviving lung cancer starts with a scan. Learn more at ScreenYourLungs.org. And thank you for your service. This PSA was made possible by industry funding and guidance from lung cancer patient groups. My muscles ached. I was tired all the time. My son had a full-blown asthma attack. It came out of nowhere. The unsettling thing about some symptoms is... I had a fever and these terrible headaches. You don't always know what's causing them. It was Lyme disease from a tick bite. I had Zika virus from a mosquito. He had a reaction to cockroach allergens. Threats to your health can come from unexpected places. Get the facts. Visit pestworld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. And welcome back to Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. It's a frightening trend that no family ever wants to experience, a missing person investigation. And the problem in Ohio is very real. When you look at the numbers of missing people here, it's increased for the last two years. According to the Ohio Attorney General's office, more than 1,000 kids have been reported missing in our state just this year. Let's look at the numbers over the years. In 2021, a total of 14,000 missing children cases were filed. The next year, there was a more than 1,500 case increase in Ohio. I asked Attorney General Dave Yost about Missing Persons Day and what his office is doing to help provide answers and closure for families. One of the really cool things is that we have been 
uh, able to, in partnership with uh, Ohio State University, BCI, has been able to do some 3D uh, reconstructions from skeletal remains of uh, people that have been found. Um, and we have at least one case where that's already led to an identification of that victim and the ability to close the, the loop. The main thing is we need people to report. There can't be an investigation. Uh, nobody will ever try to link up the identity if we don't know that somebody went missing. So we've got almost 1,000 people on the missing persons list here in Ohio. Um, every one of those stories is a heartbreak. Um, but the odds get a little bit better that we'll be able to close the loop if we know who went missing. So then how important is it to hold a day specifically that points, uh, you know, a spotlight on that issue? You know, unless it's your loved one that's missing, you don't think about it. Uh, Nobody really spends much time. So the idea of Missing Persons Day is to raise awareness, to remind people that uh, whether it's an older person who has maybe some mental or uh, dementia kinds of issues and they wander off, whether it's an abduction uh, or a violent crime, we, when a human being goes missing, that needs to be a big deal. We need to worry about that. Still ahead here on Face the State, juvenile crime and juvenile justice. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows, starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who will make preventing pandemics their life's work, sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change, and generating possibilities for a student who will be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future, who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and who enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. This morning, we're taking a closer look at the recent rise in crime happening in this city. It's become a major talking point for the election. You may have seen the ads already from the incumbent mayor, Andrew Ginther. His challenger, Joe Modell, telling 10TV this week, the mayor's office must prioritize people and neighborhoods and accept the responsibility of crime and create resources for people. This morning, we wanted to know what's being done to curb problems like teens stealing cars. We sent our Lacey Crisp to find out. 
Teens stealing cars. It's like every time I come here, y'all arrest me every time. Crime Tracker 10 has warned you about the growing problem. Stop! Get on the ground! Get on the ground! And those repeat offenders. This 16-year-old girl was arrested by Whitehall police four times in about a month, including twice in 72 hours. She is not alone. According to the Franklin County Juvenile Courts, there were 956 stolen car cases in front of that courtroom from January to April of this year. 330 of the 956, or 35 percent, had multiple cases. I can tell you when I look at a case, whether it's now as a judge or when I was a magistrate who would hear these types of cases, um, generally I would look at what has happened, so their history, not just like their recent history, but their entire juvenile history. Franklin County Juvenile Court Administrative Judge Lachelle Stroud says juveniles need to be treated as such and should be placed in a program instead of being held when possible. Our role as a court is to not treat juveniles as adults. It's not the purpose of our system. We have a completely different mission. According to the Franklin County Juvenile Courts, about 63% of those juveniles brought in for car theft related cases from January to April this year were held at the Juvenile Intervention Detention Center. We all know um, the detrimental effects of holding youth in the Juvenile Intervention Center when they should not be there. Um, because just one night in the Juvenile Intervention Center will decrease their chances of graduating from high school by 50%. But what about public safety? So all of those questions should really go to risk and if there is a threat to the public safety. There was a 93% increase in stolen car case filings in Franklin County Juvenile Courts from 2019 to 2022. The good news is that number has decreased 22 percent so far in 2023. But when, you know, the situation with the Kia and the Hondas came up, um, we have since that point felt like we were making sure that we were flexible and being responsive to the issue because there was a need. Whether or not to hold a youth is based on a point system. During the pandemic, that point system was changed so fewer youth were held. In recent weeks, the juvenile court has reverted back to pre-pandemic screening. This is what the scoring sheet looks like. It asks questions about what serious offenses the juvenile is facing and the level of violence, other cases, if weapons were used, or if the child is currently on an electronic monitoring device or EMD. Stroud says the court is placing more juveniles accused of stealing cars on GPS ankle monitors, something they wouldn't have considered just a few years ago. She says the court is working on other ways to address the growing problem. So those are some of the things that we did initially to say, yes, this is a problem. Yes, we want to be responsive to it. Lacey Crisp, 10 TV News. The court does offer several diversion programs to kids to try to keep them from spending time in jail. Depending on the youth and their family's needs, they'll place them in the best program to help the child and their family. Thank you for joining me this week here on Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. Have a great Sunday. That's again Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Ohio's new distracted driving law was passed six months ago, and police have been issuing warnings. But on Thursday, the educational period ended, and tickets are now being written for those 
who are texting and driving. In fact, most phone uses are restricted now. While driving, you're not allowed to dial a phone number or text with your hands, browse the web or social media or video chat. You can use your phone in hands-free ways, such as a speakerphone, earpiece, putting your phone in a cradle, or integrating it with your vehicle's Bluetooth. If you don't want to talk on the phone hands-free, you're allowed to talk with a phone right up to your ear, but no holding it out in front of your face or placing the phone in your lap. You can use your phone if you're not moving, such as at a traffic light. Drivers under age 18 cannot use a phone at all, not even hands-free. As the enforcement begins, Governor Mike DeWine held a news conference to talk about the impact the new law is already having. This runs about four minutes. Here's Governor Mike DeWine. This new law is really not about writing tickets. Uh, This new law is not about fines. What this new law is about is saving lives. We have already seen in this six-month grace period that lives have been saved. And that's what the data clearly shows. So I asked the Ohio State Highway Patrol to look at the total number of distracted driving crashes every month going back to January 2018. These are just some interesting statistics. Last month, September, saw the lowest number of distracted driving crashes in almost six years. Let me repeat that. Last month, September saw the lowest number of distracted driving crashes in almost six years. There were 576 crashes last month compared to the stunning number of over 1,300 crashes that occurred in May 2018. Now, let's compare um, just this year versus last year, year, year to date. First nine months of 2023. There were 1,255 fewer distracted driving crashes as compared to the same period in 2022. Let's look at deaths. Deaths caused by distracted driving. These are deaths that we knew, we know, were caused by distracted driving. There probably were, were, were many others, but these that we know. Deaths caused by distracted driving decreased 25%. This, this nine months versus the same time last year. Uh, 25 in 2022, 19 in 2023 for the same period of, of time, same number of days. Finally, when you compare March of 2023, which was the month before the law went into effect, to September of this year, the last month of the grace period, distracted driving crashes went down nearly 30%. And that's before a single ticket associated with this law was ever, ever issued. The law is a teacher. The law is most of us, most days, are trying to conform to what the law says. And so it sets a bar. And that's what we've seen in the last in the last six months. That data is specific to crashes where law enforcement had evidence that distracted driving played a role. But... Drivers obviously don't always say that they were distracted, that, that was the cause of the accident. So we know that this is an under underreported um, thing. We again look back over nearly six years 
uh, to 2018. If you exclude April of 2020, which as we will remember was right in, in, into the beginning really of the pandemic, when we had a lot fewer people who were driving. Uh, last month, again, set a record. September 2023, last month, had the fewest overall cr- crashes by far compared to every other month. There were 14,458 total crashes in September 2023. That's compared to 29,000, over double, 29,000 total crashes in January 2018. Uh, that's a difference of more than 50%. Comparing January through September this year to the same time period last year, there were nearly 23,000 fewer crashes overall. Traffic fatalities also are down over the same time period. Around two dozen fewer people were killed on Ohio's roads. Uh, The law is already saving lives. This law will continue to save lives every single day. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.